Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have chosen to speak to us, not to leave us in darkness, but to give us light. We pray, Lord, that this morning we would hear um, your word about your son and his work for us. Um, that would draw us into deeper relationship with you and to with one another. Amen. This isn't exactly an Advent sermon, uh, though hope is a pretty easy one to tie to, uh, because our hope is in the gospel. Um, and if the gospel isn't present this morning, then you probably hired the wrong guy. Um, <laughs> it is a big, full, and rich passage, and I've got some jumping off points, but you might want to get kind of comfortable. What I want you to do this morning in lieu of a traditional illustration is I want you to put aside your modernist mindsets for a moment and embrace your inner fantasy nerd. I know it's there. Because we're gonna engage in some magic today. If we remember, our Ephesian brothers and sisters lived in a magical world. They believed in all these powerful things. They prayed to magical deities. They practiced mystic and magical arts. And they saw their day-to-day -day lives as battles with evil powers. Like to us, this is the stuff of Tolkien or Lewis or Rowling or Lucas. But to them, this is how they saw the world. And much to the chagrin of the logical person that I would like to be, Paul's response to this, I'm having a, a bit of a, a moment here. My battery is dead. Does anyone know if there's a plug on the stage somewhere? All right, give me a second. I can try and wing it, but this is a tough one. Yeah. Oh, a battery pack. Um, it might work. That's a full-on laptop, so. Need some magic. <laughs> Fighting the wrong powers today, apparently. I've got a plug. I just got to make it to a. Let's let's do it. I got this part. As I move the flowers. Yep. Oh, thank you. I knew it was going to happen one of these days. It'll come back. It's plugged in. Well, here we go. All right. There we go. Now I've got to wait for it to load back up. Somebody really doesn't want me to preach the sermon. We're back. <laughs> and the time's still running. Sorry about that. 
Um, yeah, I mean, we want, I want to see all this is very logical, and I want what Paul's response about this magical mindset of the Ephesians, or I want it to be, is to chide them for their superstition, right? That's not what he does. He doesn't tell them that there's some unlearned and overly fanciful, foolish people. He actually doubles down on the magical narrative. Basing the very hope of believers in this greater magic. And let's be honest, if we take seriously the story of redemptive history told in the scriptures, we actually do believe in magic. We believe in a reality that is affected by powers that are other and transcendent from the naturalistic world that our logical minds find their home can't hide it. We just do. Our neighbors and their criticisms of Christianity are usually twofold. One is that we're perceived as overly moralistic and contrary to our cultural ethic. But the other is that we are ridiculed for this fantastical view of the universe that runs contrary to all the very logical views of the world. I mean, miracles, spirits and demons and angels and resurrection. There's no science behind that. If we believe what we proclaim in scriptures, we live in a fantasy world. So much so that Many of us more intellectual Christians, we tend to shrug off all the supernatural parts of, of our faith. And we write these off as either highly allegorical or just something of a different age before they knew better. But if scripture, if what scripture tells us is true, and, and I suppose I'm here to stubbornly declare that it is, We lose something important when we treat all this supernatural stuff as fantasy. Especially considering what Paul is praying for today, for Ephesus and for us. It's full of magical language. It's riddled with it. I don't have time. But if you would study the words in this prayer, it's like, it reads like a magical text of the day. This prayer that Paul has finally gotten back to after last week's just, you know, passionate and ADHD rabbit trail that he went on. And it's a whopper of a prayer. Really, in light of this prayer, Paul is either a lunatic or some kind of incredibly powerful magician. Calling on the all-surpassing power of God all of the previously stated implications for his made new people in it. Calling on that, he prays that we would be strengthened by his power, verse 16, that we would be possessed by Christ, verse 17, that we would be able to comprehend the unknowable mystery of his power, verses 18 and 19, and that we would be completely filled with God's power, verse 19. There's no way to put a rational, modernist spin on this one. 
To use the language of magic and fantasy, this is a powerful summoning prayer. Where we weak humans would ask to be possessed by a power greater than any have ever known. And it's essential that we understand this. Like, it, it, this is kind of crazy. We like to separate kind of the practical things of Scripture and, you know, these things. But Paul uses this crazy prayer as a jumping-off point for the second half of his epistle where he's going to get into those practical things. Like, he's going to tell us this is what, how you should live and this is what you should do and this is what the church looks like. And the basis for that? Magic. The basis for that is what he prays right here. And so to do those things well that, you know, the logical ones of us are waiting for him to tell us, like get to the point, Paul. To do those things well, we have to understand what he's praying for here. So I think there's three questions that we have to ask the text in this place. First is what is this power? The second is where this power comes from. And finally, how do we get it? Actually, these are the three questions of any aspiring magician. Our first question is important. It's really already been answered throughout the epistle, particularly in chapter two. But if you'll, you know, allow me some fantastical illustrations. Like Professor Quirrell at the end of the first Harry Potter novel, after coming in contact with a power fall greater than himself, we have to ask, what is this magic? Paul has already identified this as the power above all powers, a redemptive power, not just a creative power, but a recreative power. A power epitomized in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power crowned in his love, not withheld, but shared for our sakes. But here Paul speaks more personally about what this power is to us. First, he says it strengthens us in our weakness. Remember, Paul used himself last week as this example to the Ephesians, not an example of exceptionalism, but an example of God's power made perfect in weak people. But this doesn't mean God leaves us as just weak people. On the contrary, what it implies is that in our weakness, we gain his power. And this is exactly what Paul prays here. The heart of this prayer is that we would become strong, not in ourselves, but in him. Strengthened by his power. And despite the, the optimism that we, we feign in this post-humanistic world, we all know how powerful this magic would be if it was real. Like we know that we're weak. We've tried every spell, if you will, that we can think of to find strength. In Ephesus, these are real spells. There was a group of magic words that they called the Ephesian letters that were unique to Ephesus. 
For us, we've tried to write our stories more based on reality. But honestly, I think trusting our forms of magic is even more fantastical. The magic of human self-betterment, right? That somewhere in education or government or security and prosperity, these practical restraints of evil that we will find power and overcome. Listen, all these things aren't bad. But history has shown us that if we still believe that things like good government or education or security and wealth, if they can empower us in our weakness, <laughs> we're trusting in fiction that's far less believable than magic. But Paul rejects both. He rejects what the Ephesians see, and he rejects what we see. And he confidently calls on God to strengthen his people with a power that is great enough to do so, even when every other power, both fantastical or logical, have failed. Second thing that he prays that this power would do, telling us what it is even more, is he prays that we would be filled with Christ. Now, this is radical. I'm a nerd both when it comes to history and mythology um, and fantasy. <laughs> so I don't know what you all know about magic, but I'm a little familiar with the concept. And to call on a power, a spirit or a deity, a force, whether this is in history in the ancient world or whether this is in fantasy, to call on that to dwell in you is like crazy. That's extreme magic. It's not something that's done lightly. It's dangerous, it's arrogant, and it's incredibly rare. To be possessed by a power greater than you, even among magical practitioners, that's crazy stuff. And here Paul calls on it, not just for himself, but for the whole church. We've talked about this language before, but Paul uses this term in Christ and Christ in us, and it is like incredibly complicated. Books and books have been written on it. It's clearly far more complicated than just some mysterious possession. Because God's relationship with his servants is far more mysterious and more benevolent and wonderful than any other God or spirit has with their servants. But what we have to see is the grandeur of what Paul is asking. It's absurd to ask that Christ would be in us. And then he prays for knowledge, another important aspect of magic. So many ancient magical cults and religions are concerned with the secret knowledge that our magic gets us access to. One that unlocks the mysteries of the universe to those who know it. Now we have to be careful with this one. Just as in the former example, the nature of Christian magic is very different from other beliefs. And the mysteries that are revealed to us in the revelation as well, like we don't believe there's a deeper knowledge that some of us get access to when we get really good at this Christian thing. Got to be careful about that. Early Christianity was assaulted by a number of heresies that suggested that very thing. 
that true believers receive a new revelation of knowledge. That's not what Paul is saying. All that's contained in the mystery that God has made known to us, this mystery of his redemptive work, is contained here in the Holy Scriptures for any to see and hear. It's not exclusive. But Paul is a firm believer that a true understanding of this goes beyond just seeing and hearing. That though these mysteries are revealed to all who believe, that there's a deeper and more powerful thing going on that allows us to claim these things as true. And finally, Paul prays his most outrageous prayer, that the fullness of God would fill his people. And here he blends magic language with Jewish temple language in this absolutely absurd request, calling God to fill and dwell in his people as he did in the days of old in the tabernacle and to fill us with all of his power and authority. The idea that a power, the greatest power that has ever been known, would share his fullness with even the greatest of his followers is absurd. But this is what God does. Not just for Paul, but for all of his people. And this is actually what he has always done. There's this funny, ver- this funny part, verse 15. It says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And it means very little to us. But in Ephesus, at Israel, it meant everything. Names had power in the ancient world. And that worked both ways. To call on a name, to call on a deity, and to use their name was to invoke power. Um, it's a huge part of the religious culture and practices of Ephesus. A little side note, you haven't learned this about me yet because I haven't like totally spilled it out. Um, I like to actually use the name of God when I read the Old Testament. Whenever we see Lord in all caps, that actually is a stand-in for Yahweh. And there's a whole backstory to why we have Lord there, and it's kind of a euphemism, and it has to do with respect. But there's something (laughs) in the covenant of God where he gives the people the right to call on his name. And I think we ought to do so. But names have power the other direction. Because naming things that don't have names is a sign of power and authority. It is what gods do over the things that they have power for. See, in creation, God names things into existence. Here, Paul insists that all on earth and all in heaven, both what we see in creation, but also all those spiritual powers, including the devil himself, have been named by God. He has authority over them. But there's something else in the creation narrative that's really important. In Genesis 2, God creates man. He gives him a job. That first job that God gives man is to name the animals. As a kid, you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. Sounds kind of like busy work to us. It's not busy work. God brings Adam alongside him and shares 
with him, his image bearer, this full magisterial power and gives Adam the authority to name things in creation. God, from the very beginning, intended for his power to flow through his people in its fullness. And here Paul is calling on that. He's asking for God to share his power the way that he's always intended to with his people, the full power of God for strengthening and educating and empowering of every weak believer in Ephesus and in the church as a whole. That's a lot for my first question. Told you, get comfortable. The second question that we have to ask ourselves is what the source of this power is. It's an important, it's an important question when trying to understand any magical uh, system in a fantasy world or in an ancient mystic religion. Here's a little pointless facts for you guys. And every mystic belief or story, magical power comes from one of two places, either internal or it's external. For the internal, something within us that we're inherently born with, usually a manifestation of exercising our will on the world around us is where magic comes from, very humanistic. And the external tells us that something else gives us power. The elements of nature, a god or a spirit, an unseen force, a deep knowledge. Interestingly, even in our unending arrogance as human beings, most often, both in history and in fantasy, it's the second. It's something outside of us. And it's up to us to find it and access it. And Paul agrees on one part of that account. He definitely sees this power coming from outside of us. God filling us with this power. And the details of this are important, as are the implications. First, Paul tells us the source of this power that we receive is the riches of his glory. It's a beautiful phrase. The power of God is infinitely rich. It's infinitely abundant. It's overflowing. This is one of those pictures of God throughout the Old Testament. He is endless. (laughs) He can pour out of himself infinitely and never run out. And it's in that richness, the fact that he's not diminished by giving us his power, but actually his power is seen more fully. (laughs) because it flows out of him into us and never runs out. But where Paul diverges from everybody else's understandings of magic is how we access this. Now, if there's a part of the passage we need to hear, it's this one. Because while we proclaim this readily in all of our confessions and catechisms and theological categories, we constantly struggle with seeking power the wrong way. So listen, my magical apprentices. Sorry. You don't unlock the power of God. It's not because some inherent ability. God doesn't care about your metachlorian count. 
It's not through deep education and understanding, so stop waiting for that letter from Hogwarts. It's not through a magical artifact. You can stop hunting for whatever, your Triforce or Magic Ring or Deathly Hollow or whatever you're looking for. You can't access this power through anything that you do. Paul tells us very explicitly that God will strengthen us with his power through the Spirit. All right. We reformed intellectual hymns, not praise chorus type people uh, don't talk much about the Spirit. It's actually a creedal problem. We're going to get to this after Advent. We're going to go just spend a little time with the Apostles' Creed, a little time with the Nicene Creed. Per- personally, I, uh, I prefer the Apostles' Creed. It's easier to say. You don't stumble over the words, but there's a big problem with it. The, the Apostles' Creed says this about the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, what do we believe? And this is where the Nicene Creed adds something to me. It tells us that we believe that he is the Lord and giver of life. It's still not a treatise, (laughs) but it's important. And we leave this out of our day-to-day thinking about our faith so often. Everything that has been won by Jesus Christ is given to us by the Holy Spirit. We don't have a lot of categories for this in our theology because honestly, this is one of those, maybe the most mystical places of our theology. That's really hard to categorize. So we get these short sections in our creeds and our confessions. We struggle with this idea partly because it just sounds like voodoo magic. Like what? The Holy Spirit... Okay, cool. Details, please. A spirit filling us with power. Struggle also because we're prideful. I really want to go on that adventure and find it. Like, I want to chase, I want to go to Hogwarts. I want to chase a magic ring. I want to do the work. I want to try and find it somewhere. So much so that always, either behind or along with or shortly after grace, I decide I need to do something. And we have to understand that we come to faith by grace, we are saved by grace, we know Jesus by grace, and it is grace that drives everything that we do in our lives and how we grow in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the giver of life. He applies these things to us. And in that, the Holy Spirit is as important to our lives as the Father and as the Son. He was a participant in creation hovering over the waters. And he's a participant in our recreation, doing the work of transforming this weak, dead flesh into powerful, resurrected new life. And what we need to understand then is that we never gain the power of God in us until the Spirit himself puts the power of God in us, until he gives life to dead flesh, until he illuminates blind eyes. We cannot know Jesus simply through understanding. 
We can't gain anything of our salvation, not justification, not sanctification, not glorification, none of it. It's not our hard work, our study, or our discovery. We have to experience grace as the Spirit gives us new life in Jesus Christ. There's this narrative in Matthew 16 where Jesus asks the disciples who they think he is, and they respond first of what other people think, right? What they've been hearing people say, people have been seeing Jesus do his work. They say, oh, they think you're John the Baptist, or you're Elijah, or Jeremiah, or another prophet. And then he turns to them and says, okay, but who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. There's a very famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards on this verse. It's called the divine and supernatural light. And he uses this illustration of honey. I'm going to read this illustration to you because it's really excellent. He says, thus there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. Hear that. There's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. He says there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. Later he says, reason may determine that honey is sweet to others, but it will never give me a perception of its sweetness. There is something in the amazing power of God, his might, his love, his grace. Then our very, very, very deep human weakness, we cannot understand until the Spirit puts that sweetness on our lips. The source of this power is the Spirit's gracious filling us with its sweetness in our inner being. His rooting and grounding us in the powerful love of Jesus Christ. So our last question. I know this is the one that I want to ask. I imagine it's the one that everyone who's at least mildly practical like me wants to ask because we love, pra- we love application, right? I actually hesitate uh, because I think our love of practical application is sometimes actually an aversion to the truth that Paul's trying to express. That it's all of grace. That we need the Spirit. It's us looking for something to do. But he gives us some practical implications here, I believe. So let's ask it. That question, along with Anakin Skywalker and the countless memes he inspired, Is it possible to learn this power? If we believe in it and we're willing to be filled, how do we get it? What do we do? It's what we're so ill-equipped to do as modern humans, slaves to rationalism. As intellectual Christians seeking first understanding and avoiding the spirit at all costs, brothers and 
sisters, we need to seek the Holy Spirit in our lives. I know that sounds like gibberish, right? Or best, it's a pointless slogan. You can slap it on a t-shirt. But I think Paul actually gives us some hints about what that looks like. It starts at the very beginning when he talks about what he's doing himself. He says he, he's bowing his knees before the Father. Kneel. At the very least, we have to see the necessity of prayer. This powerful tool that we're given that we are far too un, unimpressed by. But Paul's kneeling is important as well. He's on his knees praying that the Spirit will fill his people. How often do we pray this prayer? How often do we pray that the Spirit will fill us? I'll tell you something. This passage a while back is, is one that has been very convicting to me and changed my prayer practices drastically. And it's led me to spend real time on my knees praying that the Holy Spirit will fill his church. Each of you. And I actually invite you to join me in that and do so in confidence that this is exactly what we're promised. It's that hope thing again. We are promised that as we pray for God to fill us, he will fill us. But it's not just prayer. The posture here is important as well. There's some debate about this. Is, he just, is it just incidental? Is Paul just saying that he's on his knees because that communicates that he prays? Right. Some people say so. Tim Keller insists that this is not actually the normal posture, that standing is. There's some evidence for that. I won't get into it. And then in this he's indicating something else. He's indicating a posture that is both passionate and submissive to God who he here calls his father. And today that word father has little of the same meaning. At best, you know, if a hard childhood hasn't killed the idea of fatherhood for you, father is seen as a compassionate figure. But to Paul and his readers, fathers were both these compassionate figures who were favorable towards their children in a particular way, but also who were a good and just authority. And Paul's posture signals a deep desire and trust that his blessed father will take favor on him and a willingness and obedience to walk where the spirit takes him and the church. How much do you want to be changed? It's one thing to look at your weakness, those rags that you wear, and find them distasteful. It's another thing entirely to care enough to allow someone to come in and change you. We live in a state of apathy sitting in soiled clothing, aware of our stink, but with no motivation to put on fresh clothes. And on top of that, we fear what it means to be changed. We are weak, broken, and soiled people 
And we need the strength and healing and cleansing that Christ and the Spirit brings to us. And so we should ask for it. We should cry out for it in an honest desire and in humble obedience. The other place that we learn this power the place we come to fulfilling is actually the community that we're called to in the church. Paul speaks of the comprehension of this power in verse 18, and he explicitly says, with all the saints. It is essential for us to, us to understand that we're not called to some individual journey. We're called to be a community of spirit-filled brothers and sisters and that it's in that community explicitly that that spirit fills us. It's in corporate worship. It's in the hearing of the word preached together. It's in sharing the sacraments and fellowship and life together as we serve one another in our need, as we rejoice and as we weep with one another. The fullness of God fills his temple in the Old Testament. And Paul is praying that it would fill his temple now. And that is us, not me, not you. That is us. Paul's final how-to has to do with our interaction with the power and mystery that we've been revealed, that has been revealed to us. The power of God is granted to us the Spirit as we come in contact with, as we are rooted and grounded in, verse 17, as we comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of this love that surpasses knowledge. Comprehend is a weird word. Technically, it means to grasp, but a fuller view of this word actually is to wrestle with. Keller, I tell you, I'm still from him all the time. He tells us that we should understand this as a wrestling with our own soul. Like when the psalmist asks himself, why are you downcast, my soul? And he talks about it as medication, but not the kind of, med sorry, meditation, but not the kind of meditation that you think. Not that modern meditation where the goal is to empty your brain of all things. But actually to consider what it means to us, to consider the love of Christ, its breadth and its length, and its heights and its depth so that we're rooted. And I have a green light and a red light section here. I'm a little long, but I'm gonna give you the green light section anyway. This is how Keller goes through this exercise and I think it's beautiful. He engages his listeners with a meditation on these four dimensions. It's a meditation. I don't think it's intended to be a, a theologically deep digging into what these terms mean. I actually think these terms here speak again to the kind of magical understandings of Ephesus and they reference some texts that are there. But this is, a, this is a beautiful meditation and I wanted to walk through it. In a sermon he preached in this passage, he summarized it as this. He says, what's the breadth of the love of Christ? How wide is it? Well, how wide do you need it to be? How weak are you? What have you done? What baggage do you carry? How terrible and enormous do you feel that your sin is? The love of Christ is wide enough for you to come in. 
How long is his love? Well, it's so long that it stretches forwards until he completes the work he's begun. Until all things are made new. Until you do have the fullness of God in you. And even after that, it becomes the only source of all that we have throughout all of eternity. Not only that, but it extends backwards as well. His plan to reconcile dead sinners to him made before the beginning of time. How high is Christ's love? Well, it raises us to glory. John 17 says, I want them to have the glory we have, that we have had before the creation of the world. It lifts us weak people up high enough to share the glory of God. And how deep is his love? Well, look at what it cost him. He lowered himself to walk this earth as one of us. He lowered himself into humility and shame. He lowered himself to the grave and to the hell of bearing the weight of our sin and trespass on the cross. Brothers and sisters, this is the love that is given to you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And as you come to know that love through the power that the Holy Spirit places in you, you are remade from the dead, weak flesh that you were into the powerful people of God. Now to him who is able to be far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together that he would fill us with the fullness of his love. Heavenly Father, we, we need your power. Without it, we are lost, we are broken, we are doomed. But because of your love and the amazing work of your Son, you have made that power available to us and have given us your Spirit to grow us in it. Father, I pray for this church. I pray for grace that you would pour your spirit out in her, that she would grow in her knowledge of you and her love for you, uh, for your people, for your creation, for our neighbors. Pray that you would continue to strengthen us until your son returns and we know that power and glory in its fullness. Pray these things for the sake of your glory and your kingdom in the name of your Son. Amen.